Welcome to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by Baldwin Research Institute and the Freedom Model. Addiction experts Mark Sheeran, Stephen Slate, and me, Michelle Dunbar, take on some of the most controversial topics surrounding substance use, addiction, and treatment. If there are topics you'd like to hear us discuss, books you'd like us to review, or specific questions you'd like answered, you can email us at podcast at thefreedommodel.org. That's podcast at thefreedommodel.org. Hello. I'm going to make a pretty bold claim right now. Alcoholics Anonymous is the most widely accepted and protected cult on the planet. And guess what? You can leave it and you can do great. This is Michelle Dunbar and I'm here once again with my co-author, colleague and friend, Mark Sharon. The next few podcasts we're going to do are going to outline to you our experiences in the 12-step cult and the stories about how we escaped, which for us was a bit of a process. I'm sure everyone has heard there's yet another AA propaganda film. Now I admit we have not seen it yet, but we will. I've read a bunch of reviews of the film and most have high praises and say that Beautiful Boy captures the devastation that addiction can cause in families. Movie critic Matt Goldberg says, what Beautiful Boy hammers home in its own way is that addiction is a disease with no known cure and no easy answers. That line right there makes me physically ill, literally, because that misinformation, that complete fallacy is the basis for addiction treatment and it is at the heart of our current crisis. Make no mistake, I will take the time to watch the movie because it will be a perfect illustration of how addiction treatment is a total disaster and that it really wrecks people's lives. Where did our current addiction treatment paradigm originate? Well, it originated in the cult of AA. So how do you escape something that's so insidious that it literally takes over your culture? How do you extricate yourself from an organization whose sole purpose is to keep you tied to it and to make itself grow? Mark and I both grew up in AA. His mother and my father were both members and ironically knew each other before we knew each other. So for us, AA was literally a way of life. So, all right, let's get started. Mark, tell me a story about your earliest days, first becoming a member yourself. Okay. Well, I became... I, you know, I, I, it's kind of a gray area because uh, I, in order to understand when I became a member, I really became a member by default because my entire family was steeped in it. And I can remember, uh, let, so let me go to my first memories. It was when I was six years old and my mother would leave and go to these meetings and I would ask, where's mom going? And my father would say she's going to her meetings and uh and i thought it was odd because it was um tense when he would say it and i could tell that mom was never around and uh and then as time went on i started to learn what the meetings were and my family was being pushed into uh, al-anon and alateen and uh all these different organizations that were offshoots of the 12 steps. So then as time went on, uh, it just became a, a, a part of our life. The, the big book of AA was around the house. There were pamphlets. We were constantly getting talked to about the fact that 
Um, if we ever drank, we, our German genetics would kick in and we would be an alcoholic. And, uh, and I was given brochures when I was nine years old. Oh, I remember those brochures. Yeah. They were cards. like, <laughs> there were ones that were like cartoony. Yeah. It was like, like Sue is an alcoholic. Yeah. And, and, and Jack is an alcoholic. And, and, <laughs> and there were cartoons and stuff. And, and, and Brenda's mommy is an alcoholic. Yeah. And I mean, they were, I actually, we loved them because we would sit in the meetings and they would just hand us a bunch of pamphlets and my sister and I would just be like reading the stories like, oh, wow. Yeah. So the indoctrination begins. So, yeah. And, and so, you know, for me, it was, it was just a part of my life. And then uh, my parents got, got divorced. My, my mother um, ended up marrying a fella from AA. He became my stepfather. Uh, nice guy. Uh, Jack was cool, um, and actually we grew very close as time went on. Um, but uh, it still it split our family apart. I mean that that paradigm split our family apart. And I can remember watching my sisters. I was the youngest of twelve kids, and I can remember my sisters being hurt because girls need their mother. You know, they need their father too, but they need their mother. And mom was never home, and we would have strangers in our house that she was working with um, because one of the requirements of AA, the way the cult works, is that you're, you're, the only way you can stay sober is if you're helping another alcoholic. And that's the way they keep the membership flowing, flush with new bodies and people that are gonna pay the, the money through the basket, you know, the, put their dollar in the basket and buy the books. And that's how they financially stay solvent is through uh, getting new members. So my mother was actively involved in providing AA new members. You know, she would bring newcomers home and she would tell them they had to work with others. It's the Grand Pyramid Scheme. And meanwhile, my sisters didn't have a mother because my mother would constantly say things like, well, my recovery is more important than anything else. AA tells me my recovery is more important, which really meant is more important than you. And as a kid, that hurts. And so our mother was gone. I mean, that's what happened. And then actually at, at seven years old, my mother actually did leave. Um, and, uh, and that was that. So eventually I uh, basically fulfilled a self-fulfilling prophecy. And every time I drank, I had tremendous guilt. And I knew that inevitably, it was just inevitable that I would become an AA member and an alcoholic. So I said, screw it. I'm just going to go off the rails, which I did. And eventually I almost killed some people drunk driving and, and now I was in the system, I was in the trap. And along with a, a lot of my siblings. So um, that's my story and uh, I didn't know any different. It was just a part of our family. It was the only quote unquote solution and it was incredibly depressing. Uh, I remember thinking there's something drastically wrong here but I just couldn't pinpoint it because I wasn't a researcher yet. So that's my story of how I got into it. So Michelle, why don't you tell your story and then we can talk about how we got out. I, of course, mine is similar to yours and I was nine or 10 when I first went to my first AA meeting with my dad and I, and I, I think it was around Thanksgiving time mm -hmm. and we would go to the clubhouse in Schenectady oh, yeah. and you know we, we always had these Thanksgiving traditions but they all changed once yeah. my dad became a member of AA. Um, you know that the because they would have um, alcathons is that what yes. they were called? Do you remember? Been, been where there. where yep. there was 
back-to-back meetings for the holidays, you know, all day long. And they would actually do a, I want to say we went to a big turkey dinner somewhere um, that first year because dad had to be at meetings all day long. And, um, and it was really kind of, it was just strange and quite uncomfortable for a, for a couple little girls. Um, you know, now looking back, <laughs> I know that I was preyed upon as a little girl at that meeting. But back then, you don't know. There's just these really nice old men that want to keep giving you stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so it was it was a really strange thing. But but it also tore my family apart. My my dad got sober. Um, and it was the exact same thing. It was uh, meetings and the, the fellowship of AA. My recovery has to come before everything. And, and my dad didn't really buy into the whole disease concept fully even then, but he did jump into, you know, working the program with both feet. And, um, and so he went from being somebody who really was, didn't seem to be around that much because his career was important to him and he liked partying, but at least he liked partying with the family, mm-hmm. you know, to not being around at all. And so it was work and it was his recovery. And we also had strange people coming into our home. People would stay with us for days, um, you know, because you had to give it away to keep it. Yeah. And, uh, and they were, you know, they were some pretty, pretty scary people to come into a house with young children. Um, and, and my mom just, you know, she put up with it. She did. She did become a member of Al-Anon and she did get her own group of friends. But the whole time, you know, their marriage just, they became strangers to each other. And, um, and you know, he could always throw in her face that she didn't understand him. And she didn't understand this, his struggles. And um, it really just, it, it isolated him and made him super special. Yeah, that's, that is so true that's the alluring part of AA I was just writing an article about this um, the specialness yeah what cults do is they they are this is what I'm actually writing about is the half-truths you know you have all kinds of things that sound plausible yes and then and then but behind it is for instance uh, the theory that Bill Wilson came up with the founder of AA that one al- only one alcoholic could work with another alcoholic. Yes. Right? And do so effectively and actually change lives. That's just made up. Yeah. I mean, it's just simply completely and totally made up. He just made that up. Um, it's almost as if prior to Bill Wilson, not a single drinker ever recovered or moved on with their lives. Right? Right. <laughs> that would, in order for his theory to be correct and that he discovered that only an alcoholic could work with another alcoholic, um, that prior to that, everybody died. Is that true, Bill? Right? And that's right. not true. We know yeah. that not to be true. So so they make this up. The question is why? You know, at, at face value, it makes sense. It makes it very special. Only one alcoholic can work with another alcoholic. This sort of closed clandestine meeting. You, you go there, you're special with your kind, right? That, that understand you. Right. And the reality is nobody needs to understand a drinker. If he's acting like an ass, 
he's acting like an ass and should be told he's acting like an ass. Right. You know, and mm-hmm. and that's how people moved on with their lives in in prior to AA. There was no excuse. There was no specialness. There was no no uh, one alcoholic working with another alcoholic. Um, the reason that that theory came around was so that Bill Wilson could get a flush amount of bodies in his cult. It was a way of keeping it closed, special. You walked in, you felt special because you had somebody of your kind, whatever that means, um, helping you. They understand you, which at your vulnerable, lonely point in your life is very, it makes you feel incredibly special. And and then they say, in order for you to uh, be a real member, uh, you have to pass it on. So all these chapters in the book describe exactly how to manipulate people. I mean, it's yeah. incredible. It's a cult manual, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want to read how to manipulate people, read Working with Others. It's, yes. how, it's how you literally design a cult. And it's been incredibly effective. But the way they do it is by making you feel special. And so you're an alcoholic, and you keep calling yourself an alcoholic even when you don't drink, and you recruit. And the reason you recruit is because if you don't, you will drink again. So the hammer of alcohol is sitting over your head the entire time you're within the fellowship. And, and then they tell you, in order for you not to have that hammer come down and hatchet your head, uh, you have to pass it on and bring in new members. But they leave that second part of what I just said off. They don't say you need to bring in new members. They say you need to work with others so that you stay sober. So that's the half truth, right? You, it's it's it sounds wonderful on the front end. You feel special. You're working with somebody of your kind. You're in this clandestine organization where you're not lonely anymore, and you're recruiting. That's what it's designed to do. So it takes your vulnerabilities and builds it into a pyramid scheme that has resulted in the largest cult in America uh, for 70 years. It's remarkable. It's really remarkable. Unfortunately, in the process of that, the promises that they, they tell you you're going to get, you don't get. It, you, you become just as lonely within the fellowship, and you slowly start to figure out that there's something drastically wrong. And the, But here's the deal. Once you start to criticize it or question it, you get hammered on. Oh yeah, as a heretic, and then all of a sudden, the people that you've you've basically alienated the entire outside world. Your family is no longer close to you. You're a full bore member of AA, so you can't really go back. You've burned all those bridges, and now the very people that you're relying on for your sobriety, this whole organization that's set up around you, this infrastructure, is threatening you. Right. And you better keep your mouth shut. Take the cotton out of your uh, mouth and take the cotton out of your ears. <laughs> Stick it in your mouth. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, I got them all. I, I was told them all. I was told I was on a pink cloud and I better be careful because I was gonna fall and come crashing down to the ground. And if I was lucky, I wouldn't land on a spiked fence. That was. I can't remember her name. It was a lovely older lady that oh, yeah. everybody's like. You have to talk to her, and she was super. Super scary. <laughs> God rest her soul. I'm sure she's not still alive. But, um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, you know, I did meet some wonderful people. I, I, I don't bash the people in AA. There were people that helped me tremendously. Um, even before I, I went to AA, but there were just as many people that were not nice people, that were scary people. And lost. Lost. Totally tr- desperate and lost and... 
getting the wrong information and it, it you could see it harm them um, you could see you know a lot of people uh, I, I can remember I can well I was gonna say I, I you know I, I can remember my very first meeting that I went to like it was yesterday the first time that I sat in a meeting as the alcoholic right right, right you right. know you and finally had succumbed to the yes to the realization that you're an alcoholic that it's, it happened yeah. I mean and the truth was from the first time I started drinking which which was high school um, I I would I would you know have a drink for for all the elkies that couldn't drink because I was around them for so much <laughs> and I and I felt like I was you know sticking my middle finger up at my dad and all those bastards um, <laughs> at the meetings that were telling me that I was going to join them shortly um, and so when it, my life was was pretty awful and it had fallen apart and my dad got me at a vulnerable moment he had his one of I had a woman uh, come, to, you know, to meet me, and um, I thought he was going to stick me in a nice cushy rehab. Honest to God, I was like really looking forward to a twenty-eight day vacation in a cushy rehab. <laughs> a little did I know that that cushy rehab was not a cushy rehab; it was pretty awful. Um, but but I I thought I needed to be manned up, and you know, nope. I I went to this meeting. I think it was in Saratoga because I didn't want to know anybody. Right. I was like. I need to go to a meeting where nobody's going to know who I am. Now, I don't look like my dad, so thank goodness people didn't automatically like yeah. attach me to it. And and this woman who ended up being my sponsor didn't tell anybody. Thank God. You know, she wasn't like, "Hey, this is Jerry's daughter." And I would have been like, "You took me to a meeting that nobody's supposed to know me." Um, eventually people did know pretty quickly who I was, but that first meeting, I had a styrofoam cup. I didn't drink coffee. And it smelled really disgusting anyways. And I had a styrofoam cup with water in it. And I ended up picking it apart. And all the little pieces were on the floor underneath <laughs> my feet. And I was just listening to these people. And I was, I can just remember literally thinking I should kill myself right now. Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly depressing thing. I think you said something that's important. And that is, I, I met really great people there yeah because everywhere you go in the world there are great people there are and I think that most people that go to AA are well-intentioned here's the problem the people that stick around stick around because they're now indoctrinated yes nine out of ten people leave AA within a year uh, most leave within uh, out of the nine most of them leave within 30 days so the vast majority of people go to an AA meeting or two and say, this is craziness. Yeah. This is just... It seems insane to them. Yeah, yeah. It, and it really is. If you were to take a picture or a video of it and really think about what they're saying, critically pick it apart, which we have done, Yeah. It's you're like, wow. That's like a very deep, entrenched cult. I mean, yeah. it's, it's shocking. I mean... The, the amount of threats of death, institutions, oh jails. If you don't do this method, you will end up dead in institutions or, or jail. Um, and they talk about it as if it's fact. And then what happens is uh, it becomes true. It does. And that's, that's their, people say AA is free. You know, it's free aftercare. It's not free. You pay with your freedom. 
Right. You pay with a life that is now completely enveloped by a cult. So if you call that freedom, I would call that just as bad as the bondage you have with booze. Um, so you're just trading one really miserable existence for another, unless you become a guru, which I became for a little while, which embarrasses me deeply. You need to. Um, but, but eventually even that gets old and you realize, I don't believe anything I'm telling people. I just don't believe any of this. It doesn't make any sense. And once that happens, you leave and you move on. So I guess, you know, I want to I wanna maybe wrap up. Let's, let's wrap up, Michelle, with uh, escaping. Talk a little bit about escaping. And then the next podcast, we'll talk strictly about getting out of the, out of the, the cult. The process that we yeah. went through. Yeah. But let's, let's talk. I'll talk very briefly, and then you can follow me up with uh, how you got out. What happened for me was, was sort of um, unique because I became a researcher. I, I tried to prove that AA worked. Now, yes. Yeah. And literally, literally tried to prove success rates. I really, I delved deeply into the model. I learned the history of it. I spent 12 years living at a retreat that I created, teaching the big book. And then basically when I learned what actually happened in the early days of AA, I realized it was a sham. So I basically, I, what happened for me was as a researcher, I researched my way out of the cult uh, through knowledge. And with that knowledge, I was able to move on. And people often ask me, well, do, and it's so funny the way they ask because they're all, all weird about it. They say, you know, do you, do you drink? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I say, yes, I drink. And they're like, you do? And I say, yeah, but it's inconsequential to my existence. I have a couple of beers a month. I don't, you know, I don't count I don't, it's inconsequential to my life. It means nothing to me. It's no different than eating toast, you know? And I was a, I was a very, very heavy drinker back in the day. So, so I think it's important that you know that you can move on from this. I'm not advocating drinking. I'm not advocating stopping. I'm not advocating heavy drinking. What I'm advocating is that you can be free. You don't have to go to a cult to become sober and you can move on. And uh, we'll talk a lot about that process in the next uh, podcast. So Michelle, you you say how how you escaped? Well, I it was interesting because I I was on the periphery of the retreat house, and, which was the Hegman guest house back in the nineties, and um, and I watched this whole process. Now we never did teach people they were powerless. That's right. We never, you know, we the first step did not exist as far as we were concerned. It was bullshit, um, and and I think that was really important it, it our it, early success was because of that it set the stage for the entire foundation of leaving yeah it really did and and right from go like like uh, I, I actually got involved mark and i both got involved in the political structure of aa but uh a, you know a good friend of ours from the program was the the chair for the area which which was a huge area of upstate New York. It was it was a capital region in the in the Hudson Valley, and um, and the Berkshires, I think. Yes, HMB. Yeah, it was this. It was huge, and so I I had that for almost four years, and and I really got a good look at just the inner workings and and the hypocrisy 
and I mean it was it was it was a very enlightening experience for sure and I and I can remember thinking at that point in time this is this is bad yeah this is a really bad situation and I was also kind of a, a mole almost because during that period of time you guys had started the retreat and you know and my father was very outspoken about the fact that there is no disease and that treatment didn't work he was doing his research that said the treatment doesn't work which all the treatment programs were were a fed them yeah. you know it was a it was a disgusting you know they're talking about patient brokering today like it's something new oh, it's know. been going on since the beginning I literally mean, literally literally aa members made money dragging people to rehab yeah. And, and and you know you don't see that when you're just at a meeting or two a week, but when you're in it, in the thick of it, you can really see all the crazy stuff that's going on, and um, and then they started at these meetings talking about my father and what a what a horrible person he was, and so I started seeing this ugly side of the cult. Yeah. And and that for me was when I really started thinking I got to get out of here. Yeah, gotta escape. I, yeah. I really have to. This is a, this is a scary organization, um, and so the the newness of being in the secret organization because there is there's a lot about it in the beginning, especially when you're a young person. That's exciting. Yeah, and you 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 know when you're a kid in school, you want to be accepted into the into the popular kids, and that's what it felt like. Yeah, I'm finally with the popular kids, um, and and it. But then I realized, no, these people are. Not, you know, not everybody here wants to help me. Um, probably the more majority don't. Their only goal is, I'm, I'm here because I have to stay sober. So they're fearful. Um, and, and at the same time, they, there's all this weird stuff. And it's, I don't know, it was very scary for me. And that's when I started extricating myself. At the same time, I, I got married. I started having kids. And, but the minute you, if you're somebody that's right in it and you're guru, you know, you have almost guru status, which I had by that mm -hmm. point. Yeah. I, at any given moment, I was sponsoring 20 women and, um, Mark knows he remembers it was crazy. It was chaos. And, um, and then you start pulling back. The backlash is, is it's wicked. It's, it's wicked. awful. It's awful. And the things people say about you and, you know, and I, we're in the these leaving AA groups online and I really do try to help people and it's hard for me to to get back into it and think about it a lot but I know it's important yeah. because it was painful yeah it was a horribly painful time in my life to have to extricate myself because there were people I genuinely loved um, and to learn that these people didn't genuinely love me back was traumatic yeah that I think that was really hard was to realize that I, you made a great point really really important and that is when you become a secretary of AA like an area or a GSR yeah, of a group general or, service representative or whatever the connective tissue is between the meetings which are held harmless and then the actual AA world services incorporated see what happens is when people go to meetings they don't understand that there's this high rise in Manhattan that has a prudent reserve of millions of tens of millions of dollars and and that it's a machine it's a financial machine that's running and that every time you put the dollar in the basket yeah. every time you know that you have millions of members doing that and my first foray into that structure was a treasurer 
So right. then I started receiving. Mine too. Yeah, then you start receiving the envelopes from a World Services yep. that say, when you're done paying the rent and everything, send the, all the rest of the money into World Services. So you write a check and you do that. Nobody asks why. Nope. It just happens. And then I started to do the math. I started to figure it out. And then I started delving into that. So what happens is most people aren't researchers by nature. So they don't, you know, try to follow the money, try to look at how this the workings work, or they justify it somehow in their mind that this is a good organization with, you know, you're, you're, you're you know, a good organization. So it, it's not, it's not. It's, it's, it's a financial model designed to keep itself solvent. That's what it's for, and you're just a minion. Um, so when you started talking about the structure, that's where you find that out. Yes. The connective tissue between the meetings and the, uh, the corporate end of things. When you start to realize, oh my God, behind the scenes, this is really just about money. That's when you go. And managing information. Yeah. And, and you limit the information the public gets about you to keep, to, which is, it's a brilliant, that's, that's why there's the traditions. The traditions basically were set up so that nobody is allowed to talk publicly about AA, nobody. Right, and you can't research it. You're not nope. allowed to research it. Don't you think it's weird that it's called Alcoholics Anonymous? Right. That's just like got cult screaming <laughs> out. That's right. Right. I'm gonna be. I'm. I'm not gonna have a name. We in AA, you you talk to each other. I'm Mark S. And I was Michelle B. Yeah. <laughs> that's. That's so whacked. It is. I, it is so completely obvious, um, but you don't question it. Well, we no, did question it. We that's, did, and that's, and that's what happened. And summarily, as much as we say we extricated ourselves, we kind of got thrown out on our ear eventually, <laughs> yeah. I, and not in a very nice way. Yeah, I, once we started to publicize that it was a cult and that the, how the inner workings were actually worked, uh, yeah. And it, that it the, was, the steps, by and large, turned out to be counterproductive. Um, and that the reason, I mean, it's not okay that nine out of 10 people leave. And sadly, those, the truth is those people probably do great for by and large, they probably do better, but it's not okay that for the one out of 10 that stay, the majority of them don't do well. Well, yeah. And, and we're going to talk about that in the next podcast as well, or the one after that about, uh, you will hear this statement be made. Well, I, I get what you're saying, Mark and Michelle, but I know five people that got well in AA. And we're going to tackle that myth in, in, as its own podcast. And I'm, I'm going to actually explain what you're actually saying when you say that. And that people don't get well in AA. They get trapped and then they're cued to behave in a certain way. When in reality, they're the ones making this, the decision not to drink. AA didn't do it for them. They got well in spite of AA, not because of it. So we will we will describe that in detail. Yes, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna close this out by saying, um, you got the beginnings of our stories. Um, we did get out. We did get out while truthfully trying to to show it worked. But then we moved on. I I probably was a longer holdout than Mark. Um, because I kept thinking there were things about it that were positive. Um, and, and, you know, but I'm also a researcher by nature. I look at the data, um, and the data was compelling 
that that there was nothing about it in the end there was nothing about it that was helpful to people and um and that was a for me you need to understand um that was hard for me that was hard for me to accept that that you know and the truth was i did know for a fact that i i i got sober in spite of it i did know that i made a decision before i went to my first meeting that i was done um with that lifestyle and and so i i didn't know that right up front but i kept thinking you know there's got to be something that's that that works and but then i looked and not a single person that i sponsored not one and i sponsored hundreds of women in the seven years that i went to aa not one stayed sober except for the people that came through our retreat yeah because we weren't doing aa we weren't <laughs> we were we the anti-aa model and uh i yeah so it's it's uh so it, we we figured something out and uh, and the process of leaving um was fun and terrifying and difficult and wonderful all at the same time and and we will continue this uh in our next podcast i want to say one last thing and that is if you want to know how to extricate yourself from the cult if you are somebody that is actually listening to this going yes that makes sense and then you get fearful or angry with what we're saying i suggest you read our book the freedom model for addictions because it's 450 pages of exactly why and how to extricate yourself from the trap whether it's treatment and or recovery recovery is a trap and it limits your life when you could be free of both of them you could be completely free and move on and i know that sounds impossible uh our culture doesn't support it but the data is there and you know listen we've spent 30 years developing the path out of this cult whether it's treatment and or recovery so you can get out of this it's the freedom model for addictions and you can find it at thefreedommodel.org um you can see about our retreats at soberforever.net and um and you can call us here at 888-424-2626 and at any given time you might be able to get mark or i um or carla Uh, And we will absolutely answer your questions and help you. Um, And you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You can leave. You can be okay. That's right. And if you just want to get the books uh, real easy, you can also go to Amazon.com. Oh, yeah. Or one of the other online retailers. The books books are available, um, you know, for either download on on your device or by paperback. Okay. Thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Addiction Solution Podcast brought to you by The Freedom Model. You can send your questions, comments, or topics you'd like us to talk about to podcast at thefreedommodel.org. If you enjoyed this show, please share it with your friends. If you are struggling or you know someone who is, The Freedom Model can help. Call 888-424-2626 or go to thefreedommodel.org to see which option may be right for you. If you're specifically seeking a residential retreat, you can check out soberforever.net. Once again, that's soberforever.net.